So the earth had one common language and a common vocabulary. When the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. We know that somewhere above Nineveh, there is this mountain range that goes from the Persian Gulf all the way across the top of the Tigris River and up into the Black Sea. That mountain range is called the Zargas Mountains. And most likely, somewhere in the Nineveh region, what we know today as modern-day Iran going into Turkey, is the Zargas Mountains and Mount Ararat. Okay, and the Ark, of the, the Ark settled somewhere in there. Who knows? Okay, there's lots of videos where they think they found that kind of, but that's, that's a whole other thing. It'd be cool if they did, but that doesn't change. So we're told that they move eastward, okay, which means they come to Shinar. Shinar is this reddish region right here, right above the Persian Gulf. Remember the language eastward. Eastward's always judgment. They went eastward from the garden in their exile. Cain went eastward from his exile out of his family. Eastward is this constant theme of judgment. So after the sin of Noah and Ham, we're seeing this judgment that's happening. And they come to Shinar. What's interesting is you have one family that's beginning to grow, and the first place they end up going to is Shinar, where the city of Ur is. Well, the Ur's not there yet. No matter what history book you read, all historians agree that Shinar is considered the cradle of life. Or you probably have read it, if you remember from history class, um, Sumer, um, Sumer. This is the cradle of civilization. This is where all life begins. This is the first writings that we have. And the first writing is cuneiform. Um, that we have a written down language, and the, when the wheel is invented, and the plow is invented, and languages begin. And what's interesting is a lot of scholars say that these cultures seem to f- appear almost fully developed. Not like fully, fully, fully developed, but there's, you don't see a gradual increase in this thing. And so this is called the cradle of civilization. And this is exactly what the Bible is saying, and it totally makes sense. And so they settle there. And it says that they, then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick instead of stone and tartar, tar, <laughs> tartar, instead of mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens so that it, we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered across the face of the entire earth. Now, there's a phrase there that should sound very familiar. The come, let us make. The narrator's intentionally doing this. Where have you heard this? Creation, when God says, come, let us make man in our own image. Now they're saying, come, let us build a tower to make a name for ourselves. This shows you the heart of their sin. They're taking the exact God-creator language, and they're putting in their mouth, to make their own technology in order to make a name for themselves, not to make a name for God as his image. Basically, they're saying, we don't want to be his image anymore. We want to be our own image. And now we're going to create man, something in our image. Monuments, towers, okay, that kind of stuff. And so they want to make a name for themselves. This is incredible. And the second sin, this is the first big sin is that they want to become a God, so to speak. They want everybody to be glorifying them. They want to be in control. Because they have this new technology called the brick. 
Now, this is significant because before they would have mud and they would have to like heat it up and that kind of stuff. But they don't have the ability to do mortar and they didn't have the ability to do straw. And we've actually, there's like one mud building still left over from this region. It looks really bad. But we have brick buildings still from the time of Abraham. Um, in fact, if you go on the internet and Google, when we t went over in Desert Storm, um, the soldiers took pictures of a ziggurat that's actually in Ur. And then a lot of scholars believe that's the time of Abraham, if not maybe 50 or 100 years at the most after Abraham. And so this idea of a brick allows you now to build something completely straight and uniform so that your towers stay together better and that you can build them taller. And so that's a technological advancement, which allows them to do their second great sin, let's not be scattered. We don't want to fill the earth. So remember God says, I'm going to make you in my image so that you'll go into the earth and expand my garden and my kingdom. And they're saying, we don't want to be your image. We're going to build something in our own image so that everybody will see how great we are and we're going to stay together in one place and refuse to expand your garden because we're going to build our tower. This is, you don't get any more blatantly shaking your fist at God than this is. And so all of them, everybody unifies. So we're back down to Genesis 6 again. Everybody in the world is evil and wicked. And so this theme is continuing on. So they build a tower. This is what it looks like. It's a ziggurat. Yes, if you Google the Tower of Babel on the internet, you get this nice little spiraling tower that goes up and is not leaning, unlike the Tower of Pisa. But that's not accurate. That was some guy during the medieval period who kind of drew the way he thought it would be. I mean, artists are great, but they also have a lot of imagination. And unfortunately, that stuck. But this is the tower. Why? Because everywhere you go in the world, this is what you see. In fact, they've done x-rays, whatever you want to call it, for the, the pyramids. And underneath the pyramids is this kind of a structure. You go to Aztecs and the Mayans, and they have these kind of structures. Even some of the Cambodian temples that are drastically different still have this as the basic structure. And so this is a ziggurat. And this is a three-level ziggurat, so that the first level becomes a ceremonial level, and this is where they would do sacrifices. So some cultures, like Egypt, it would just be grain and animals. If you go to other cultures, like the Aztecs or the Mayans, it would be human sacrifices. And they would do their sacrifices for people here. And then the next level is where, like, the men, the, the elite, are allowed to go. And then the highest level is where the priests are allowed to go. The highest level that is blue is called the Holy of Holies. And it is a, the tabernacle, basically. Now, you have to remember the tabernacle is not original with the Jews. The tabernacle has already existed in some other cultures. This is painted blue because blue is the color of spiritual realm. Why? Because when you look up in the spiritual realm, you see a whole bunch of blue. And this is why um, the Smurfs are blue, because they were spiritual. This is why your Hindu gods have blue faces, because they're spiritual. This is why you have the roofs of Greek buildings um, in, the, in Greece are blue, because they're a barrier between them and the spiritual realm. Blue still stands that way today. Um, and then blue also becomes the color stability and loyalty, because the spiritual realm is very stable and been around for a long time. Therefore, blue communicates loyalty and stability. This is why a lot of your banks are blue, because they want to communicate that we're stable and loyal and will be around for a while. Or they're green because it's money. 
And it's also why they tell you you should wear blue shirts when you go in for an interview, because you're subconsciously communicating, I'm loyal, I'm stable. So colors affect us, and they mean something. So they would go up in here, and they believe that if they did rituals, see, they're not really trying to build a tower all the way up in the heaven. That's ridiculous. What they're doing is they're building what's called, in the, the Babylonian language, the word Babel is gateway to heaven. And the word Babel communicates the idea of a gateway to heaven in the sense that they believe that if you go up in the top and do a sacrifice and you perform rituals, then you will gain secret esoteric knowledge. Knowledge that goes deeper and more metaphysical and mysterious than just the simple facts of knowledge that we have in life. And that when you gain this esoteric knowledge, it will give you the keys that you need to master the universe, master the four elements, earth, fire, water, and air. And when you bring those together, you become the fifth element, and you get, your third eye opens up, and you know everything you know to escape the material realm and become your own god. That's the kind of tower they're building. Not a literal tower to heaven, but a sanctuary that will allow them to gain knowledge and escape that. Now, if you want to learn more about that, then just go to my website and look up mystery religions. This is the idea that they're building here. Now, this is also interesting because when God puts a halt to the building of the Tower of Babel, he'll scatter them across the face of the earth, which is interesting. Why do we have so many different cultures across the earth that are so drastically unique to everybody else's <coughs> and languages that are so unique and different from everybody else's languages? But the one thing that everybody seems to have in common is the way that they build their temples. Probably because we, they all came from the same temple. <laughs> And so this also lends this great strength to the fact that there was a unified people who were then scattered one day. And so this is what they're trying to accomplish. A little foreshadowing, when God comes along and judges them, he's going to say, this is why it's called Babel. Because the word Babel in the Hebrew has more the idea of futile or confusion or just babbling. So what man's wisdom thinks that they are creating a gateway to heaven actually just produces a bunch of confusion, futility, and babbling. And that's the irony here. What seems wise to a man is foolishness to God and vice versa. And this is the idea that God is trying to communicate. But Yahweh came down. There's a chiastic structure here, and that is this. A, all the earth, one language. At the end, the language of the whole earth. When you get to the middle, the chiastic structure, and Yahweh came down. That's the key here. The focus of this, this whole paragraph is structured in such a way that you are zeroed in on and Yahweh came down for two reasons. Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower that the people had started building. Now, the word in Hebrew actually has more of the idea of stooping down. The irony is that no matter how great they think they are, they are oh so far away from God. That God has to stoop down to see what they're doing which means they are so far away from what they're doing. Then he says, the Yahweh said, if these people all sharing a common language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Now, don't interpret this like God says, wow, that's an amazing tower. If they're able to be on a tower like that, there's nothing technologically that they're able to accomplish. Some people interpret that. What is God more focusing on than anything else in the story? their disobedience, their heart, their rebellion. And that's what he looks at and says, if they, as a unified people, are able to accomplish this extent of rebellion, then there is no end to how they can rebel. 
And this is probably the key statement for all of the sin of humanity. This is the point that God has been trying to make in Genesis 3 through 11. If this is what we're willing and capable to do, then there is no end to how evil our heart is and how far it can go to rebel against God. That's the main point. That's what God is horrified by. That's what God is regretting when he says, I regret that I created humanity. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they won't be able to understand each other. Now, notice that God kind of takes back his come, let us statement, but now it's in judgment. So it first starts off by creating humanity, then humanity takes the phrase to try to become their own God, and then God takes it back and says, I'm going to judge you. This is a repetitive theme that keeps coming. God creates something good, humanity rebels, and then God judges. This is the cycle. You said, he said, come, let's go down. Let us, yes. The same let us that's back in chapter 2, 1, when he says, let us create humanity, the angels, the divine council. So Yahweh scattered them across the face of the entire earth, and he stopped the building of the city. That is why the name is called Babel, confusion, futile, because there, was, there Yahweh confused their language in the entire world, and from there Yahweh scattered them across the face of the earth. Notice the judgment is what they refuse to do. You don't want to, if you want to be unified, I'm going to de-unify you. It's really hard to be unified when you don't know the same languages. And I told you to scatter. Let's go scatter. Now, the idea that this is not an evolving, it's not that like God comes in and says, you speak different languages. And then over a long period of time, these languages begin to develop. And over a long period of time, they scatter. Because it says that the Tower of Babel came to a stop and building it like that. Which means that this is all instantaneous. The conjunction tying in, they were, their language was confused and they were scattered and the tower ceased being built. All ties this into something supernatural, instantaneous. Meaning that, bam, God said multiple languages. Bam, they appeared at different parts of the earth. They stopped building the tower. Now, did he teleport them? I don't know. Or did they have so many different languages all of a sudden that they just scattered very quickly on their own? I don't know. Does it bother me if God teleported them? No, because we believe that Enoch disappeared and was no more. And we know that Philip, after he witnesses to the eunuch in the book of Acts, he's teleported to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus teleported up. Okay, We've seen this happening a lot in the Bible. And remember, he's a God of creation. The idea is that they're scattered. Which is also interesting when we go back to history, a lot of people say there seems, when we look at the Cambodians and we look at the Aztecs and the Mayans, their cultures seem to be fully developed. When we go back to their history, when we go all the way back to the earliest records that we have of their history, they already have fully developed languages and all this kind of stuff, which lends evidence to the Tower of Babel. And if you go back far enough in some of these cultures like China, they actually, there seems to be this sense that they actually worshipped a one monotheistic God. If this just happened to you, that might be pretty convincing that you should change your belief systems. Right? And so this is, history actually backs up a lot of this stuff. So what is the point? The point is this. Man was meant to be unified together, expanding the garden. But now, because man chose to unify themselves together in order to build their own name, God scatters them and changes their languages. The fact that we speak different languages 
is a judgment from God. Is to keep us from being unified. Because when we get unified, we start massively rebelling at a much greater rate than we do when we are scattered. And this is the idea. So we're going to start seeing a theme. Two kingdoms now. One kingdom is going to develop, and you're going to see, going back to when we learn about Nimrod. I kind of skipped that because I wanted to make this point. We learn about Nimrod, and we're told that Nimrod builds a city, he builds a tower, and he is, his name actually means like wicked, okay, or tyrant. He is called the first tyrant ever, dictator. The idea of bringing people together under his power in order to dominate the world under his power. Now, don't think like giant dictatorship power nation. Not yet. But the idea here is, is that we have this beginning. Now, lots of people rack their mind trying to figure out who this is. If you're familiar with Babylonian Syrian history, which I think there's only like two of us at my school. <laughs> Some people think it might be Sargon II who was considered one of the first empire builders back, back, way back before even Abraham was born. The idea probably is not that we should try to find a very specific tyrant in world history, but that this Nimrod is a um, a mixture of, or a, what do you call, a prototype of what all tyrants are like. And the idea is that it doesn't matter if he's Hitler, Mussolini, Fidel Castro, Saddam Hussein, tyrants are tyrants are tyrants. They all operate exactly the same way. And so this becomes the new theme that you're going to start seeing. Humanity is going to seek to start unifying itself together. They're going to try to overcome this by learning languages. They're going to overcome this with technology. And so you're going to see empires build. So one of the first states are going to rise up is the city of Ur. And Ur is going to be one of the first empires that begins right up. Now, it's a tiny little city-state, but it's going to start unifying. And then we're going to see other city-states, Asher, up in the north, that's going to begin to rise up. And each one of these are going to seek to dominate each other until eventually, over time, you're going to start seeing Egypt become a great, great, great power. Then you're going to see the powers of the north, when we get to chapter 13, um, come down and try to destroy these powers. And then we're going to unify even more into the Assyrian Empire that's going to go across the world and do some really nasty things. And then the empire is going to get bigger with the Babylonians who are going to take almost most of this map. And then the empire is going to get bigger under the Persians, which take up all this map and then some. And then the empire is going to get bigger with the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire, and then the Ottoman Empire, and then the British Empire, and the American Empire, and the ideas, and a bunch of in-betweens. And the idea is that what does every single nation want to do? To become unified, to have power over others. And yes, God bless this nation, and yes, there are so many amazing things that are happening here, but this nation was started by a rebellion against of authority and the massacre of American Indians and Chinese and the enslavements of the blacks, and we have a long history of dominating people. And yes, there's some amazing things that God has done in this kind of country, and amazing people in this country. And I'd much rather live in this country than most other countries because we have been given many freedoms to worship God and that kind of stuff. But don't ignore our history of domination and enslavement for the sake of more power and going over to other countries to gain more things. This is what nations do. 
This is what cities do, period. And the idea is that this is going to keep building and building and building until we have a one-world government, one-world religion. Because man will constantly seek to overcome the language barrier to build a tower of control in order to enslave the world. In fact, the UN, I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying UN is like the Antichrist empire at all. I'm just saying the UN is a long, another example in a long chain of examples. But do you know what the official logo of the UN is? It's the Tower of Babel. What in the world made you pick that? They say many languages, one people, united together. And they have a Tower of Babel. They even built their, the, 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 uh, the, 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 what do you call it? Um, the official headquarters of the European Union. They actually built it to look like the traditional picture of the, the Tower of Babel. And if you really want to go to mystery religions, when you look down on it, it actually looks like the Eye of Horus, which is a very, very controlling, powerful image that you use to dominate other people. Okay, these images are, are still here to this day. And this is what God is trying to communicate. This is what man does when he comes together. They try to dominate. But there's another kingdom. And the other kingdom is in the next chapter, God is going to call a man by the name of Abraham. He's going to take Abraham not from a city and a nation, but from the wilderness. But notice that Abraham's also the son of a man who was at the Tower of Babel and got scattered. So he is simultaneously a man of the judgment as well as a man who does not belong to the city or the nation. And God is going to take him and he's going to raise him up into a nation. And that nation has one goal. And that goal is to become such an image of God that they're not to build a tower for their own name. They're to become a light tower to attract the world to them so that people will see, wow, this is how amazing that you've become without being self-serving. I want to know you're a God. And as they get to know this God, they become a part of the most blessed nation the world has ever seen. The nation has more health more wealth, more power than any other nation. And it's not because they've made their own name great. It's because they've made his name great. And then more and more people feed into it. And then humanity starts becoming more and more unified in the chosen people of God. And we see this with Rahab and Tamar and Ruth and on and on and on. People who keep coming in and the empire gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But it's not to make our name great. Yahweh says it's because I've put my name on you. And name communicates character. And they make God's name great. And as they become God's name great, he makes them great, which attracts more people to them so that they can know God. And then they expand and expand and expand. And the idea is that one day Christ is going to come. And, of course, the Bible is also a long history of them screwing that all up. But despite all that screwing up, God comes as the ultimate nation, the ultimate king through Jesus Christ, and he comes and he brings the Holy Spirit. And what do they experience on the day of Pentecost? Everybody hears them speaking their own language. Because now we're not speaking one unified language to make our own names great. We're speaking one unified language to bring everybody into the kingdom of God. And then Christ comes along. Now that we get what a true kingdom looks like, now that we get what true blessings look like in a righteous kingdom, and now that we have the Holy Spirit who transcends all ethnicities, all sexes, all social statuses living inside of us, now we can go into the nations and make them a part of a new people group, the church. 
And that's the idea. No longer are we a nation anymore. No longer are we a people of a political entity. Now we are a people of God, a new body that transcends all barriers in order to be unified. And that's the idea that the Tower of Babel, so this isn't bad to learn multiple languages. It's not bad to build kingdoms and empires. The question is, why are you doing it? And that is this chapter 11 becomes one of the most important paragraphs because now, or sorry, chapters as this are, because now that God has established this cycle, rebellion, 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 judgment, 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 God redeeming despite that, God redeeming that despite that. We see these three things happening over and over and over and over again. He's now ends this with a climax of this is man's ultimate goal, to be unified against God. This is why God will scatter us and not keep, allow us to be unified. Then, now that we have that in our head, he can now start developing this theme of what it really, truly means to be unified. And so when we go through the Bible, when you go through the Bible, look for those two parallel tracks. The world constantly nationalizing themselves to have power, but God redeeming Israel to ultimately die for the world to allow us to experience the power of God and the life-changingness of God. And so this chapter becomes central to those themes. So this is why it's not wrong to learn multiple languages, it's not wrong to live in the city, it's not wrong to live in the nation, only if you have learned the lesson that the Bible has taught you of the proper way to be in the city and in the nation and the proper goal to know the multiple languages. Now I learn languages to expand the kingdom of God. Now I go into the nations to denationalize them and to the true people of God. And I don't mean denationalizing as in let's go rebel against governments, but in the helping them find their identity and the true kingdom. And if you want that, then go to First Peter. First Peter is all about how do I find my identity in this kingdom without becoming anti all these other nations, that I maintain my love for America, but my identity is not in America. That's a difficult tension. My identity, I'm not an American first and foremost. I'm a child of God and his kingdom. And I first and foremost do his will. But because I am a child of God, I have an incredible deep love for America and its lostness. And I want them to know who God is. And that's that tension. We cannot become unpatriotic, but we can't become so patriotic that we sell out our allegiance to God either. There is that difficult tension that I love America, but I'm not America in my heart. Not in my heart. Does that make sense?